When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello one and all and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm your host Joe Haddo and I hope wherever you are in the world you're staying safe and well. If you're listening via iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please do take a moment to rate and review Book Off as it really helps us to spread the word. And if you're of the social media persuasion, then do give us a little shout out and say hello because we always love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Off. In this episode, as always, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in our book-off. They are former journalist and number one best-selling novelist Victoria Hislop. Hello and welcome to you. Hello, lovely to be here with you. Lovely to have you uh, down the line, as we call it. Um, And also joining us, former TV producer turned author Lissa Evans. Hello to you, Lissa. Hello. Hello. Very nice to be here. It's great to have you both here. And it's it's great that you're already friends. (laughs) Yes, we are. We we see each other at the London Library and have sandwiches in the square. And uh, yeah, it's always good to see Vic. And I feel feel rather (laughs) distant because we haven't really been... (laughs) having our lunches for quite a few months, but they are incredibly helpful in a way, just a sort of feeling that you're not the only person in the world writing. And Lisa and I always have good <laughs> chats, either in the sunshine or in the sort of cafe when it's the winter. So I can't wait Aww. for that to resume. Yes, it's like, having, it's like being in the office and having office colleagues, if anyone can remember what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've, I think we've all forgotten what that's like. But I suppose what's interesting is authors don't have colleagues in, in the same way as others do. Obviously, there there are teams behind publishing a book and you work with your editor and your agent and everything. But um, to have a sort of fellow author and who, you know, who you can have a have a lunch with and, and sort of bounce things off is probably really, really lovely, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there there are certain moments when I think we do bounce things off each other, obviously not the whole content of a book, but definitely things like book covers. And because mm. of quite a few of us have become this kind of little gang in the London Library down there near Piccadilly, you know, if, if you have a sort of first shot at a book cover from your publisher, that's definitely what we'll show while we're eating our sandwiches. You know, what do you think of this? <laughs> and if, you know, five out of six people eating a sandwich together say, that's horrible, 
you know, will, <laughs> it, it influences, you know, and, and, and book titles and book titles. I, I definitely remember we listened yep. chatting about book titles and, you know, mm. they're, they're, it's a group that you trust because they, they know the pros and cons of, you know, certain types of approach. And yeah, we're, we are a bit of a team and absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm. lovely. It's mm. very supportive. Yeah. And I, I suppose, you know, everyone has a has an off day occasionally and that's the, that's the same for writers. So if you're in one of those days where the words just aren't coming or, you know, there's there's a bit of inspiration dam, then, uh, you know, just being able to talk to someone who understands that is, is also a really, it's a really helpful thing, isn't it? It is. Although Vic, I have to say, uh, writes with such tenacity and speed and skill <laughs> that actually the rest of us feel a little bit... Pathetic and flattered <laughs> by comparison. Like, Come on, Lisa. That is true. <laughs> I was actually true. looking up reviews of your past books, and everybody completely raves about your writing style. And I, nobody ever raves about my writing style. So I think, in terms oh, of, of writing style, <laughs> I always think I, I can construct a sentence to say what I mean, but the actual prose, I think. You know, if we're having prose off as opposed to book off, um, <laughs> I, I would I would definitely give my prize to Lissa. She writes absolutely oh beautiful. This and, turning into uh, a back slapping uh, circle. Nauseating to listen to. Your biggest <laughs> Lissa's biggest fan is my husband. Without really? I, mean, I don't know, you probably got yeah, bigger yeah. fans, Lissa, but I watch him, he reads pages are turning, <laughs> tears are sprouting. Uh, you know the, oh. your books really touch him, really touch him. So I love that the, there's this there's this camaraderie right now and all this sort of you know uh, respect and love for each other because I've seen what Liz has been writing on social media about the book off later on and she's she's here to have a proper battle, Vic. So I think <laughs> I think all these nice these nice words are going to go out the window. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> I'm not convinced, as you'll find out later, that, that Vicky's actually beatable on this one. In, in, in a certain subtle way, she has cheated, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Already, pre-battle, I'm accused of undermining the competition. I told you. Yeah, I told you this is, this is going to turn nasty. Um, and before yeah. it does... Why don't we talk about um, your latest books? We're recording this in September. The Listen, your book's just come out and, and Vic, your book's coming out in October, which is when this podcast will become available. Um, so let's let's talk about One August Night to start with. You, you return to Crete for this book and it's the long-awaited sequel to The Island. So what made you want to do that now? Well, it was right at the beginning of lockdown when we didn't really know how much time we had ahead of us. And the only thing that I absolutely knew was that I couldn't travel to Greece. You know, that was not going to happen. And it's a place that you spend a lot of time in, isn't it? It's, it's somewhere you go. <clears> for... It is. It's, I, I spend a huge amount of time here, and especially when I'm obviously researching a book because, mm. you know, 90% of what I write is set in Greece. So I suddenly felt... I, I mean, there's no possibility for me of writing a book 
set in the Kent countryside, which was where I found myself. Um, I cannot do English characters. I can't persuade myself that they're remotely real, so I definitely wouldn't persuade a reader. And somebody had actually said, you know, what, what happened after, you know, the leprosy colony of Spinalonga, which is what the island was about, shut in 1957, and then, you know, people had lives afterwards. And it was one of the few books I've written where I don't kill everybody off at the end. And I thought, actually, <laughs> you know, quite a lot of the others are a little bit like Greek tra- tragedies, you know, bodies on stage. But with the island, there was still this open-ended, you know, sense of, you know, what happened next, which I never imagined that I would go back to and, and pick up these threads. And, you know, lockdown was a very difficult time for everybody, I think. Life was just suddenly not remotely how it usually is. Um, and I had these weeks stretching ahead and I needed to keep myself, you know, in a routine, which we all know really mattered for those months. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of did feel quite creative. Um, and, you know, this is not meant to sort of jerk people's emotions but my mother died at the beginning of lockdown and the island was dedicated to her uh it was all very unexpected so more or less on the 22nd of march when i was just sort of thinking i've got to get through this period Mm. i began to write the sequel and it for me was one of the most joyful writing experiences i've ever had because I was literally drawing on my own imagination. There's no, there's no historical research in this one, so it makes it quite different from other books I've written. It's, yeah. In a way, it's more pure character, um, and it's the characters of three men uh, who are all affected by the death of Anna, who's shot at the end of, of the island. So I had a, gosh, really rather a wonderful time writing it um you know sitting at my desk at nine pretending actually that I was going to the London library there wasn't any sandwich with Lissa in my lunch hour um but I still had a routine and that's what a lot of us enjoy about going to this library in London is that it makes us think like we're going into an office Mm. so um one August night the title comes from this night when Anna in a way, the femme fatale is shot by a jealous husband. Um, and it's a night that changes the lives of every character. Whether or not they're a leprosy patient, this is a night that really sort of blows up um, a community and blows up the normal kind of sequence of life. Mm. And, uh, you know, I found... You know, I followed these men, these men who essentially... Uh, you know, their lives as they were end on that night. And I followed and saw where they went. And it was a little bit like I was watching the plot unfold. I didn't ever feel I was particularly in the driving seat. You know, I I sort of (laughs) rather... That's the excitement of being a writer. I don't know if Lisa... I'm sure she'll have the same experience. You know, characters totally take you by surprise and you think you're going in one direction and they say, actually, no, I'm just... I'm going to take a left turn here and off they go up a different path <laughs> and you follow them. So creatively for me, it was a very satisfying three or four months. Um, 
and it's going to press next week and coming out in October. So, you know, I hope readers who like The Island, because having never written the sequel, I don't know how people react to them. Maybe they go, oh, that's not what I thought would happen and why <laughs> did you do this? You know, I'm sure they'll have opinions, but uh, we'll wait and see. But for me, it was, um, gosh, a, a very important book for me to write because I feel I concluded the stories a little bit more than I had done in the island itself. I feel like I, there was some sort of catharsis um, found mm. for several of them who were left slightly hanging, their fates were hanging in the air. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that fans of the island will be, you know, will, will enjoy it first and foremost and find it as page turning as, you know, I want them to. Yeah. But uh, we'll see. We'll wait till October. Well, I, think they, I think they will, Vic. Don't you worry about that. Let's hope. Mm. And uh, speaking of sequels... Well, you couldn't have had a smoother... (laughs) A smoother segue, could we? V for Victory, which is your latest novel, is uh, a sequel to uh, Crooked Heart, is it not? It is, it is, and the third in a trilogy, and I certainly thought I'd never write a trilogy. I mean, it's quite a loose trilogy. You can read all of the books as standalone, but yes, it is. It it specifically takes two characters who are at the heart of Crooked Heart, um, a boy called Noel and his foster mother called V, and it... And Crooked Heart is set in 1939 to 40, and it picks up again in 1944 to 45. It's a book about the end of the war, which um, I found an extraordinary thing to read about. I mean, I had done lots and lots and lots of World War II research before this. I've written two previous books set in that era. But I'm always terribly scrupulous about not knowing more than my characters. So I had never read anything specific about the end of the war um, until researching for this book. And I was really, although I knew the basic facts of the end of the war, um, about the the rockets and the doodlebugs and so forth, I had never really realised what a horrendous six to eight months it was. Uh, Everybody Mm. knew the Allies were going to win, but there was, first of all, doodlebugs, pilotless planes, and then there were rockets, which would literally drop out of nowhere and... uh, with no warning whatsoever. If you heard it, you might still be alive. Um, if you didn't, you know, it, it killed without warning. And thousands upon thousands of people died over about six months. And not only uh, that was going on, but also uh, rationing had hit terribly hard, but also it was the coldest uh, winter within living memory. So it was the grimmest possible time. And, and everybody mm. knew the end was coming, but they desperately firstly wanted it to come but they also wanted to hope for something more hopeful in the future so it was a really interesting time to write about and fuel shortages and oh gosh it was it was tremendously dramatic and grim um and but also it was a chance for me to pick up characters that I've written before and whom I know now as well as my own family I think I don't know whether Vic feels the same but it's <laughs> um, better it was, than <laughs> yeah better than yeah, yeah. that's that's mm. true and uh so it was yes it was a real it was a pleasure to meet them again. It really was, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a question for both of you, really. Um, I'll start with you, Lissa, which is about what draws you to your to your settings of a book. So for Vic, it's Greece, which I want to hear about. For, but for you, Lissa, you're obviously fascinated with this part of history, this Second World War time. Um, what, what is it, do you think, that, that drawed 
that drew you to that in the first place and that made you want to write you know more books about it well it's quite it's quite specific really i mean i have when I was about 12 or 13, uh, my, my big sister, who was a sociology student at the time, bought a book for my dad for Christmas called How We Lived Then, which is by Norman Longmate, which was uh, detailed uh, memories of by various people who, who had... Um, there'd been advert places, you know, what are your memories of the Second World War? And, um, and also through diaries and letters, people remembering what it was like, uh, the home front was like on an everyday basis. And my father looked at it rather wonderingly and said, well, why would I want to read this? I lived through it. Um, and, and so he didn't, he didn't read it, but, but I did. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. It wasn't, um, a, book, it wasn't a, a sociological treatise. Later books I've read about the Second World War have been much deeper in terms of, uh, of the, you know, the, the, the social milieu and the psychology. This was simply what people ate, what went into Christmas stockings, what school was like, what um, where people went on holiday, what did you feed your pets. So it, for me, it was absolutely fascinating. And I read and reread it and reread it. And so I, I sort of moved into adult life with a kind of baseline of knowledge about um, the home front, which I added to over the years. It always fascinated me. And so when I actually wanted to write a book set in the Second World War, which was about the making of a film, which turned into their finest hour and a half, I already had, if you like, memories of my own of it. So I had something to build on. I wasn't starting from scratch. And it, it's nearer that I still, that I, that I now feel very comfortable in, though I wouldn't have wanted to live in it. But I, I, I mm. sort of know what my characters are looking at. I know how they speak. I, I know what they yeah. want. And Victoria, for you, you know, you said you just can't imagine writing British characters in the Kent countryside. So what, do you know what it is that draws you to Greece for your novels? Gosh, it's not really something particularly sort of intellectual response. It's a very emotional <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> response. Yeah, because I sort of just really resonated me, with me what Liz said about, you know, this, the domestic details from that period that she learnt through the book, you know, what's in people's Christmas stocking. I mean, that, that really ignites my um, interest as well. Those, you know, because so many historical books, even, you know, all books about the Second World War or most, are not about what it was like for a woman in the family and children. It's, you know, you can read any number of books about strategy of, of battle and, and war, and, and the same in Greece. Very easy to find books that detail... Um, you know, let's say for the Civil War, which I wrote about recently, which army was where and what they were wearing. But I always think, well, what was it like for the women left at home? And I suppose my path into the sort of period in Greece that I write about, which is sort of 40s and 50s, 60s a little bit, is that Greece hasn't actually, in certain areas at least, certainly in Crete, hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, you know, if you go up into a village in Crete, in the mountains, it could be any time between 1940 and 2020, even what the elderly ladies are wearing. So I suppose that's what's always fired me, is the sense that I can get close to history, uh, in inverted commas, because history is almost still there, you know, domestic situations, the way people live, 
the way the old ladies here cook, have a donkey or a mule kind of loaded <laughs> up with their firewood. You still see these things. Um, so I always feel it's like... It's amazing, isn't it? It is. I mean, they certainly in Crete, people live quite simple lives, a lot of them. They grow their own vegetables. They have a goat. You know, it's somehow in this recent period, one's been very envious of that because they didn't go to the supermarkets anyway, so they weren't going to find yeah. them emptied. <laughs> you know, they've got their potatoes and everything already yeah. from their own um, kind of small holding. So I think for me, being able to write about the past in Greece isn't so difficult because it, the past and the present are somehow very fused here. You know, there's no big divide, for example, between the 20th century and the 21st. And you see mm. some amazingly clapped out old trucks around here, which I'm sure have been <laughs> going for 40 or 50 years. Um, so, but why Greece is a, I absolutely have no idea, Joe. It's one of those strange <laughs> and wonderful things that happened to me back in 1977 when I first came here. And I just totally fell in love with Greece and come here, you know, have been coming ever since and find inspiration, which I don't really anywhere else. So, yeah, it just sort of delivers me ideas. Um, Well, I love that, though, because I, I mean, not to turn it on to me, but I have a similar relationship with, with California and specifically with Los Angeles because I went there when I was very young but sort of old enough to appreciate it, but I was still in my teens and then lived out there for a few months. And I've, I've sort of been going back, not every year, but I go back quite a lot. And it's just, it, what you're saying, is it's similar to me. I, I find when I'm there, even though sometimes it's awful, <laughs> I... Yeah, you feel you're at home, maybe. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I sort of feel like, um, yeah, it's like a sort of second home and I feel very comfortable there. Yeah, if you... If you believe in reincarnation in any form whatsoever, you know, you feel perhaps you were there once. That's how I feel yeah. about Greece, that this is somehow I was somehow once here, even if I was here as a plant or an ant. <laughs> I think I've been here before. <laughs> yeah. A gecko on the wall. Yeah, yeah that would be quite a nice life, actually. <laughs> I think I was the H on the Hollywood sign. Oh. I think that's what I was. <laughs> that's nice. Love that. Um, Lisa, you had, um, before you started writing, or certainly before you were, were first published, um, you, a bit like me, worked for Auntie Beeb um, in, in the radio side of things, but you I also did. were involved in, in TV and in, in producing and directing uh, some great shows. You did... Um, what did you have a hand in? Room 101? Uh, room 101, I started for radio and then we moved to telly with it. Um, did you did you work on Father Ted as well? I did. I produced the second and third series, yes. I didn't oh. do the first one. That was Jeffrey Perkins, who was kind enough to, to hand me the mantle when he <laughs> when he, he became head of comedy at BBC. Uh, so, yes, and, and the, Kum, the Kumars at number 42, that was, a, that oh, was another one of mine. Lovely. So yes. wow. yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, that was very lucky, yeah. I mean, it's it must be so so great to to have those you know shows that we still talk about that you kind of that you know that you had a part in. Oh, it's uh, it is. Go the on. reason for bringing it up, sorry, is that you that's that's very much a sort of background in entertainment and comedy. 
Yes. And so I suppose I I wondered if there was ever a time when you thought you would you would write more in that genre rather than you know historical fiction. Um. Funnily enough, no, really. I mean, I, I went into comedy because, like most people in comedy, because I love comedy. But yeah. <laughs> I started off in radio where, you know, you don't drift into comedy, you choose to go into comedy. But I started, uh, you know, I did my, if you like, my apprenticeship in radio where all you have is words. I mean, you know, it's fatuous to say so, really. But but you cannot think of a better um, place to learn editing. And um, it appealed to something in myself but also it, it honed my skills of, of, of pruning things of seeing where the joke is of seeing the perfect line of you know of of, mm. of shaping and it and of precision all all of things which are important in, in my own writing and I think I always wanted to write prose I, I you know I've got notebooks going back to when I was five <laughs> things stories oh, I've well. written <laughs> but but I, th- I do think that the uh, dialogue is very important in my books and I think having worked in dialogue and having worked in radio that's that helped me to find how to write yeah so, so yeah, I, I do from. think also in you know in whatever industry writers are in before the, there is an influence there and there's also skills that you don't necessarily know you're getting. Um, for example, I guess Victoria in, you know, as a, as a journalist, you learn about structure and you learn about, you know, how to get a point across quicker. And, you know, the, I, I guess it all, yes. it all helps play yeah. into the, the novel writing. That was also true, but I worked in the, um, Probably the best training of all was being in PR, ah, i.e. public relations, yes. which is the art of persuading people that something is true, and it's probably not. That's very good. So it's the greatest fiction, the greatest <laughs> fiction of all. And that's what I did, because I had a sort of very, you know, I, unlike Lissa, who's got a much more, I mean, really good uh, BBC credentials, which I think... Um, you know, what she says about words, absolutely totally true. But I went from book publishing to PR, where I learned to kind of write fiction, <laughs> really, and then into travel <laughs> and then into travel writing, um, which was good because for me, because I felt without having had the travel writing experience, I wouldn't have written that first book because my initial thought was, oh, I'm going to write a travel article and then I immediately thought no I've got there's another layer here there's almost a fusion of the PR which is creating Uh. a story and this real place which um obviously exists and still does so yeah I think we're both lucky to have in a way not because I couldn't I'm sure Lisa would agree could you have written a novel would you think you'd still be writing novels now if you'd started no, 21. I mean, I did try to start at 21. I didn't have anything to write about. I didn't start... I didn't write <laughs> yeah, a novel until I had something I really, really wanted to write about in the end. I, I don't think my style has changed hugely, but my, my the stories that I've accumulated um, are the things that have changed. Yes, I totally yeah. agree. I feel lucky not to have made some attempt, maybe, you know, at 23, 25, because I, I think I was 40... Late forties, probably when the island, forty five when the island came out. So you know, um, I was forty one when my first novel came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad of that, and yeah. So, and I also think it's really good to talk about that, and and for you know people listening who 
who who might be writing and or wanting to get published and thinking oh god you know it's never going to happen well actually <laughs> it's not all about the 20 somethings no. and the first novels it's actually there, there is something about having life experience yeah. and like you say having a story to tell well we story. like to think so don't we Vic definitely <laughs> we and we're, we're like we're these like 20 something debut novelists <laughs> you, you know you know when you buy a peach and it looks really nice and then you try and stick <laughs> your knife in this peach and it's just hard as a rock I think we're like the right <laughs> the right peaches in the bowl we're like lovely just on the turn kind of yeah, nice yeah, yeah. sweet fruit <laughs> You know, you've got to eat us now. You've got to. Oh gosh, can't take this analogy too far, can we? No, no you've, yeah, got, you've got to be careful. Yeah, there are various stages of fruit, and I feel, you know, lots of young writers probably feel very cheese. I'm thinking cheese, cheese, maybe, maybe okay, cheese, yes, a bit yes, of nice Stilton. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's very good. Yes. <laughs> really, really smelly and mold. No, no, we can't go down there either. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's oh, we've dear. got you've got plenty of time in your life to write. And oddly enough, it's something that you can do, as we know from writers even older than us, is so that people go on writing into their eighties and writing brilliantly. Oh, you know, how yeah. old is John Le Carre? I'm not sure, but he's definitely older than us. And, you know, isn't it great? You can do it sitting down or when you're still young enough to, you know, run, run the marathon. It's, it's, it can be a really good career for the, the slightly more ageing. Mature. So, mature, yes, mm. exactly. <laughs> good word, very good, yes. And I have to say, Vic, that um, next to being a food critic, I think travel writing is one of my dream jobs, you know. That must have been fun. Yes, it was. I mean, I was... <laughs> sent to China and South America and India. I mean, really, all and Australia once to review health, health farms. I'm afraid I would drop everything, you know. And I was asked to ride over the Andes oh, on a horse God. in the footsteps wow. of Bruce Castile and the Sundance Kid. I was off, you know. I, I picked up my job because I used to ride a lot, so I was often given these rather jolly gigs that you needed not only a travel journalist but a someone who could ride a horse the great outdoors the adventure oh, that was amazing i mean even if i <laughs> someone rang me while we were recording this program and offered me something I'd, you'd probably just hear a, you know the line would go down oh, i'd be off <laughs> 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 see yeah, they were very exciting yeah. things all sorts of mad adventures like white water rafting and um, yeah, oh, and wow. the riding things, Fam. which were extremely exciting. But I haven't done it for <laughs> a long time. I've slightly been too, too busy. Says wistfully. Writing. Still available. Still available for exciting <laughs> yeah. horseback riding. <laughs> Ideally in warm countries. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it's time for the book off now. And as I said earlier, this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you love that you think we should all read and you're going to get three minutes each to do so. Uh, We'll come on to that very shortly um, but I'm actually keen just to talk about what you've both been reading recently if indeed you've found time to read. I know that certainly in lockdown a lot of people sort of couldn't concentrate enough on on fiction or didn't didn't quite have uh, you know, their usual reading prowess. Um, But it's always good just to hear what's been on your to be read piles recently and what you've enjoyed. Lissa, is there anything that springs to mind that you've been reading recently? Yeah, it took me a long time to get back into reading. I must admit, I did a lot of rereads at the time. But the book I've read most... I've read uh, two books uh, recently that I really loved. One, a, a, a current book uh, called Small Pleasures by Claire Chambers, which is a really terrific book set in the 1950s. Beautifully, beautifully written. I'm not saying anything about it, actually. But fans of... Barbara Pym particularly would adore it and I also uh, read a book by Molly Pantadowns who was a writer during the 40s called One Fine Day which is does sort of what Mrs Dalloway does it's one it's basically one character and one day but um I find Mrs Dalloway quite hard work where was this one I thought was completely wonderful it's set in 1946 and and it's about it's about life after the war it's about the changes in life it's about re-establishing a routine when when uh, one one person in a relationship's been away for a long time it's set in the in the downs and i thought it was completely fantastic so one fine day wow. by molly Pantadowns. that was my favorite fantastic and what about you Vic? well it's a book that i think more people would enjoy but it, it has never really kind of reached the right audience i think and it's by a french writer called virginie despont who is enormous in France you know they chopped down trees to publish her Um, (laughs) and she's written this trilogy um, called Vernon Subutex which is the name of the the main character and he's a really truly dreadful individual who sort of more or less lives on the streets of Paris um, and hangs out with you know terrible ex-rock stars and prostitutes and drug takers and all sorts of uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells and it's completely outside my comfort zone this book it's like I'm looking through a little peephole to see what really goes on in the kind of darker areas of Paris but it's totally gripping and I I got very kind of caught up in this character because there's no way you could he's a um an anti-hero this Vernon and there's no way you'd ever want to meet him. You don't admire him, but you can't help being absolutely in awe of how he, badly he behaves. Um, What's the first book called, Vic? Well, they're, they're all called Vernon Subutex, oh, which is okay. his name. Uh, C-U-B-U-T-E-X. 
and there's right. sort of volumes one, two, and three, and you you follow his his fate. Um, and I think it's published by Maclehose Press, which is part of uh, you know Hachette, I think, um, translated by somebody called Frank Wynne. And heaven knows how he's managed to translate all this slang and swearing <laughs> and kind of French idiom, you know, which you might think is untranslatable, but he's done a brilliant job. And you kind of go down into the sort of the depths of, um, you know, French, kind of the, the underworld, if you like. Anyway, right. outside, generally, the opposite of Jane Austen, I would say, yeah. if one had to kind of think <laughs> of how you describe it. Um, it's a great strapline. And then, and then the, yeah, that would probably have sold it better, actually, because it really should be. I think a lot of young people would love it if they discovered it. Um, and a more kind of comfort read, which I reread, um, was the sort of David Nichols' Sweet Sorrow, because I found oh, that yes. a very a lovely book. touching, lovely book that, again, different members of the family can read and all discuss and enjoy together. So it's it's not just a book for somebody of my age, you know, 20-year-olds absolutely love it too. Um, and he does write, I think, with just great warmth about emotion and uh, you know, he really he really gets people. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan, but I enjoyed the sort of comfort of rereading that again. Yes, it's that, that's sort of a perfect book to have picked up over the last few months, isn't it? Just to... Yes, you know, I just think to, to so. Get away from everything else. Yeah, because yeah, reading so hasn't nice. always been the default activity. I think during lockdown, it, it it could have been, but I think sometimes our minds weren't sort of rested enough to read. But uh, let's hope. No, exactly. We'll all start exactly. living more normally. Hmm. Yes. So those are my two <laughs> recent reads. Well, thank you very much for those, um, and let's get on to now. The book off, the main event, and find out which books you're putting forward. So before we decide who goes first, who goes second, um, Lissa, what book are you putting forward for the book off today? I'm putting forward The Shipping News by Annie Prue. Fantastic. And what about you, Vic? Well, Lissa's already said I've won, apparently. No. Um, <laughs> I, I've hinted, I've, I've hinted that you are... You have chosen an unfair advantage. Oh, okay. I've chosen War and Peace by <laughs> Tolstoy. <laughs> Which I've heard of, I think. Well, how it's terrible, have... terrible how... pressure on the host. A terrible pressure terrible. on the host. <laughs> the problem is we've all heard of it, but not everybody has read it. And I was one That's of That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, good it's like the most famous title in the world, but... I don't know how many copies are read every year. Anyway, well, this is true, and we're gonna we're gonna find out exactly why you've chosen it in just a moment. Um, Victoria, would you like to go first or second? I'll leave that to Lissa. Oh. I'll, defer oh, I'll go second. To you, I'll, Lissa. I'll go second. I'll, I'll go, go second. second. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you can kind of really. She wants to see what she's up against. Really yes, parry, parry the blows. <laughs> Okay. Victoria's so eloquent, I'll have to, you know, sharpen my claws. I'm just going to talk. And, um, I've got to talk really fast so I can get the whole book into three minutes. <laughs> I'm going to gabble like a sort of racing, <laughs> horse racing commentator. <laughs> yes, you, you have three minutes and you don't have to use them all. But um, as the uh, three minute mark approaches, um, I will either be... 
honking you oh. ringing you with the school bell yeah <laughs> so um as as Lisa got to choose first or second Vic would you rather be rung out or honked out I think using those expressions definitely <laughs> rung out <laughs> I'll be rung out. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's not as bad as the another episode of, uh, when I said, um, would you rather have the bell or the horn? <laughs> Which sort of <laughs> really changed the tone of the I'm whole sure thing. Um, <laughs> okay. So the bell for you. <clears throat> yes, please. That like little yes, school okay. bell. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put three minutes on the clock then and it's over to you. Uh, three minutes uninterrupted, Vic, to tell us about Tolstoy's War and Peace. Okay. Well, first of all, it's important that you read the right translation and the right one is Anthony Briggs, which is the most recent 2005 in Penguin Classics. And it's so fluent, it reads like something that was written five years ago. Very, very sort of... Um, Gosh, just it, it flows, the pages turn. And there are 1,300 pages, definitely the longest book I've ever read, but one of the most deeply satisfying and moving of anything I've ever held in my hands. And like many of us, I've resisted reading it for my whole life, i.e. 61 years, with all sorts of excuses. I imagined thousands of impossible names, and in fact there are no more than the average Thomas Hardy, and probably only half a dozen that really matter. Pierre, André, Helen, Sonia, Natasha, they're not so difficult really. Second excuse, of course, was the length of it. When would I have the time? Well, lockdown dispensed with that excuse and I've never read a book that remotely competes with it for character development, suspense, humour, not something I imagined, great writing and the warmth and understanding of the human condition. There's love, loss, sex, death, politics, the personal, there are battlefields, religious visions, scandal and Tolstoy interweaves history with fictional characters. So I even learnt about Napoleon and his invasion of Russia, which I would never have picked up a history book to read about. So you see how everything looks. It's like watching a film, from the glorious clothes worn by women at a ball in St Petersburg to the landscapes and even the exact colour and texture of a dog's fur. He just gives you everything. Then there are the passages where he steps outside the narrative and gives you his views on fate and how history actually unfolds, which I found really fascinating. He talks about how history is often random and isn't shaped by the decision of big political figures. So there's sort of philosophy there as well. And this isn't a plot spoiler, but all the way through, I wondered if he'd hit us with a sudden tragic event but the ending is a happy one and it's quite nice to know that and the only tears I cried at the end were because I was genuinely sad to have finished this wonderful journey this epic journey that I went on with Tolstoy it took me about three months um, I was sorry to leave behind Pierre, Natasha, Anya, Sonia all the rest but the person I really was sad to leave behind was the voice of Tolstoy um, and it was a the most wonderful reading experience. I read it in a book group of two with my 27-year-old son and we both, what's rather wonderful is that it's obviously a book not just for elderly people like me but for younger people as well because... 
<laughs> I think I said I think I said everything I wanted to. <laughs> I think yeah, that was really great. Uh, really great. Yes, you can have a breather now, Vic. Oh, and lovely relax. glass of water. Um, yes, have a glass yeah, of water. Cold very, shower. Very, very, very good. Shower. Yeah. Um, and you, you, I mean, you, I, I could tell you could have gone on for at least another oh, minute. Oh yeah, I could have gone for thirteen. Sorry to cut you down. Thirteen hundred minutes. I could have done. <laughs> yeah. I'm putting um, three minutes back on the clock then, and it's over to you now, Lissa. Oh, um, I was. I've just gone home. Like, I, I've, I've left. No. <laughs> There's no point in me staying here. I was going to go down and make a cup of tea. And... Not at all. I believe you're going to rise to the challenge. <laughs> that was um, beautiful. Three minutes on the clock then to tell us about the shipping news by right. Annie Prell. Right. I've chosen the shipping news. Um, and I must. I'm, I think I read this book for the first time not too long after it was published in about uh, 1993. And since then, I think I've reread it five or six times. It's got... Everything for me that a book should have. It's, it's wonderfully and distinctively written. It's satisfying. It's vivid. It's funny, moving. The characters are not those you usually encounter in fiction, and yet they're utterly believable, and it has an incredibly strong sense of place. And though the narrative arc is quite straightforward, it, it, it's stuffed with stories within stories, so that when you get the end of it and look back, you, you, you can't quite see the whole of the road that took you there. And, and that means there are still surprises on the second and third reading. It's an alternative to writing a very, very long book, for instance. Um, and chapter one begins, uh, I wrote this bit down, here is an account of a few years in the life of Coyle, born in Brooklyn and raised in a shuffle of dreary upstate towns. And, and the opening chapter is quite, quite a sort of jolting read for a first timer because he it's a sort of rapid run through this man Coyle's early life and it's written in a very choppy style with short sentences and broken clauses. And these these build up a sort of vivid picture of a man who who, who can't find his place in life, who's always standing awkwardly on the margins, he's only only half understanding or you know, half hearing what people are saying. And and Coyle Coyle is described as as having a great damp loaf of a body, head shaped like a Crenshaw, no neck, reddish hair ruched back, features as bunched as kissed fingertips. Uh, a Crenshaw is a melon, by the way, I looked it up. And, and he's got a huge chi- chin as well. And he's awkward and he's unhappy and he's exploited by everyone he meets. And this culminates in a terrible marriage to Petal, who despises him while he worships her. And then, this is only at the end of about chapter two, she dies in an accident. She leaves him with two small children. And for the first time in his life, he takes the initiative and he moves his family a thousand miles to Newfoundland, which is the home of his forebears, which is a lump of rock in a, in a, in a wild sea, the harshest of environments. But it's a place where, where, to his surprise, for the first time in his life, he seems to fit in. And and he's accompanied in the journey by by someone I think is one of the, the great characters in 20th century fiction, Agnes Ham, she's called, and he's, she's his father's sister, and she's only ever known in the narrative as the aunt. And she's she's dry and fierce and practical, and she's a, she's a woman who's fought back against an awful childhood and found life and love, and is now returning to, to exercise old memories in the place where she grew up. So that's the sort of central hinge of the plot but there's so much else in the book it's it's stuff with characters and interlinking stories it's with the, with the practicalities and the, the problems of Coyle's domestic life and with the office politics of the terrible Newfoundland local newspaper that employs him and and with sea law and with history oh, oh there we go <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounds brilliant oh, I, I do love it, it. Does, yeah it? I can't help making a comparison between 
this coil and Pierre Bezukhov in War and Peace, who's also kind of damp. I mean, you would say Mm. the damp loaf of a body litter Mm. is so great, isn't it? But that, good. He's that, a big man, isn't he, uh, you, Pierre? You one for imagine, that, yeah. oh, Pierre has a damp loaf and also marries this woman, um, Helene, who sort of oh, yes. lets who, him who, down who and leads dies. Him a dance. And yes, dies, yes, yes. leads him a dance good point. and then dies. Yeah, so. That's a good point. Oh, wonderful. I'm not wow. saying that, you know, there's any plagiarism going on here, but I love <laughs> feeling, actually love feeling that there are these, you know, it's these flawed people. Flawed yeah. people yeah. like Coyle yeah. and Pierre, who are so Those are real and interesting. Yeah. yeah. Great. God, I really want to read it, and I never have, Lister. I'm really... Oh, oh, well, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Gonna good. I mean, I have it. read War and Peace, so I haven't Of course I've you read, have. Read, well, no, years ago. I mean, gosh, when, yeah. when I was well, everybody 20, had, I read except it. me. I mean, oh. I felt... I did, I, I did love it, but it, I, I, might, I do remember thinking at the time... I wished it had been called Peace and Peace because I, I much preferred the peace bits to the war bits. I must admit, they, 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 they bogged me down a bit, whereas, they, whereas these, the social parts, the, you know, the family, that those were yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, Well, I thought both of those pictures were absolutely brill and I haven't read either of those books. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I would happily go and pick them both up. Um Listen, the fact that you sort of reread the shipping news six times and that you got something more out of it or certainly, you know, more surprises on the second and third reading, the, the fact that it's so stuffed with stories, you know, um, really makes me think, gosh, there must be so much from... It's funny, book. there's then, another aspect to it cause, because because my mum absolutely loved it and she used to read it once a year just for Christmas. So when I read it, oh. I feel like I'm having a conversation with my mum who's long gone. But, you know, it feel, oh. yeah, so it's, it's always nice sharing that yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sharing books across the, ge- across the generations. Mm, absolutely. Really Very nice. special, isn't it? Yeah. And then with your pitch, Vic, um, with with war and peace you know you started by saying you've got to get the right translation and i've recently been reading a lot of books in translation for the international booker prize and Gosh. you know I, yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more about how important it is absolutely to get, you know, i mean their names the should be right. on the front cover of every single mm. book they translate because you know their labors to do it's not just saying you know this word equals this word they the way yeah. they have to really reach into the meaning. Um, I mean, I think for literary, for literary fiction, it's absolutely extraordinary how yeah, yeah. translators absolutely. work. And, um, and for humour as well. I remember hearing, yeah. a, and, uh, what was her name? Was it Angela Sim- Simpson? No, God, I've ignored this bit. But I remember hearing a translator uh, talk and, and, and trying, trying to get the jokes for the Asterix books. Um, oh, I, I, yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. so she not only yes. did serious translations, but she also did asterisk translations. I think it's some, yeah. It's almost a skill, in some cases, higher than the writing itself. I think, you know, to lift a sentence and turn it into a different language and get it right. Um, Anthea so, yeah. Bell. I've just remembered her name. Sorry, Anthea Bell is the translator. Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry. Yeah, she's really, she's very fated, isn't she? And celebrated. Yeah. But uh, but what I loved about um, hearing you talk about War and Peace, as you say, a title we all know and one that 
many have not read and always come up with excuses like you did, you know, about having the time and goodness, how how blooming long is it and stuff. But it was interesting to hear you say that you have, you know, there's not a book that has compete that competes with it for in, in terms of the, how it sort of weaves the story. It's got love, loss, sex, death, humour. I didn't know that humour. Well, again, I I don't know whether Anthony Briggs brought this out, but Tolstoy writes with kind of irony about a lot of his characters, and you know he's sort of teasing them for the way they're behaving. He's not yeah. just sort of narrating <laughs> their actions. He's going, you know, it's just the little twists. So there are lots of places where I laughed out loud, and because, you know, the family were all together in the same house, we go, what are you laughing at, Mum? War and peace. Nobody sort of expected this. And the other thing that, again, because I was a sort of bit of a philistine um, and hadn't read it, he the chapters are incredibly short, so you can just read it for half an hour. You know, the length of the book it's so divided, subdivided into chapters and then uh, parts. So it's got these sort of main acts and then volumes. So you could arguably read part one and then put it to a side and pick it up again a few weeks later. But I really didn't want to do that because it does have a great sort of flow. Um, And the other thing in this edition, The Penguin, which I hugely value now, is that there's a precy of every single chapter so you can quickly whiz oh, that's through good. and it's yeah. literally one line it's literally the key thing that happens in that chapter you know Nikolai ends up owing 43,000 rubles <laughs> and you you know you that, that's enough to jog my memory of what happened in <laughs> volume two part one exactly, chapter yeah. 14 yeah. so it's, it's very very easy to, to sort of work your way around and of course it has a lovely ribbon which, you know, to have yeah. a ribbon in a book, oh, it's lovely. So you're not returning. <laughs> I love a ribbon. Oh. Don't you love a ribbon, Lisa? Oh, I love book? a ribbon. Or even two. Yes, yes. Two. I could have done with two. Oh, two. Yeah. You're getting yeah. spoilt with two, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I mean, I loved both of your pictures. And as I said, I'm, I'm, I want to read both of these books. And I've got to pick one, you know, to take home based on the pitch. That's how it works. Um, and do you know what? I, I didn't think I would do this, but I'm going to take War and Peace home. Oh, oh I my knew goodness, it. me! I knew it. Oh, I, say, I knew it. Don't drop it on your. Don't drop it on your foot. <laughs> no, gosh. But also, I don't think I've ever really been that fussed about it. But hearing you talk about it for those three minutes has actually really made me want to read it. So I think that is That's good. that but was a really good job. But fair also, dues. Lisa, fair dues. I want to read the shipping. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to read. And that's that. not. I'm not. I'm not copping out. I genuinely am. <laughs> I, I think that sounds fascinating. I thought Vic did beautifully. Well, I, I, I thought you did, did, and I now feel yeah. that I'm going to down. Loving, loving. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. Oh, see, we started with a loving, and we're ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is nice, isn't it? <laughs> totally genuine. <laughs> <laughs> One August night by Victoria Hislop is out now, and it's published by Headline. And V for Victory by Lisa Evans is also out now, published by Doubleday. Both fab reads, and we suggest getting yourself a copy to fill your shelves. Um, Thank you both so much for your wonderful pictures and your recommendations and for chatting about your books. It's been lovely spending 45 minutes with you and uh, I hope we, we get to do it in person again very soon. 
We'd like thank you, to. George. Pleasure. We'll definitely be there, won't we, Lissa? And next time, yes, we you'll win the, the competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be, we'll do it with a drink in our hand. We'll see how that uh, how, how that changes cool. things. Good. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.